You're listening to the Bitcoin.com podcast. Our guest today is Michael, founder of DeFi Yield. The opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by various guests or sponsors of the podcast are solely their own. They do not necessarily reflect those of the podcast host or the other people, entities, or organizations affiliated with the creation or production of the podcast. The guest and sponsor may consider their information reliable, but others involved in the creation or presentation of the podcast do not warrant the accuracy of guest or sponsor information, and it should not be relied upon. This episode is brought to you by DeFi Yield. DeFi Yield is a DeFi company that works 24-7 to ensure safety and comfortability. DeFi Yield's auditors have done 50 audits in just the past year, and moreover, created the first audit database with well-known and trusted auditors in it. DeFi Yield has also created the world's first safe dashboard that offers connections between all major DeFi networks to ease portfolio management processes. DeFi Yield even published The Wall Street Era is Over, which quickly became a best-selling book on Amazon. I'm your host, Dustin Planholt. Join us as we dive into the world of economics, politics, tech, Bitcoin, and cryptocurrency. For even more crypto-related news, sign up at news.bitcoin.com or follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin.com. Now let's bring on our guest. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dustin. Great to, uh, great to be here. Really, uh, really appreciate it. Big, uh, big fan. Uh, you know, you and I were talking before. I wish that you had a fan club so I could join it. But uh, Well, you know, I've heard it. that. I've heard it a few times. So one day I'm working on it. You can join the fan club, Michael. I'd really appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm going to just send me an invite right away. I'll just pre-send you some Bitcoin just to sign up in advance. I like this. You see this? You are the first guest that has truly said to me, Dustin, I'm going to give you something. Not just joking. I'm a firm <laughs> believer that success leaves clues along the way. And I like talking to people that have been successful in the space. What I mean by successful, they haven't quit and given up and blamed, blamed the ecosystem for why they either ran out of money or why the, the token or the coin that they bought that that their their shill master leader uh, told them to buy it didn't work out for them. I like to talk about utility and what happens in this market on a day-to-day, but it usually starts with a journey. So how did you first get introduced uh, to this term Bitcoin or, or blockchain technology? Like, What was the first for you? So, you know, I first, I, I think I'd like randomly heard about it beforehand, but really when, uh, when I like kind of became aware of it and I didn't really know much at the time was with the Silk Road. So I don't know if you remember Dark Web, the Silk Road, these guys, you know, were running a $80 million drug ring from a laptop in, you know, San Francisco and got taken down. And it was like, oh, hey, what people were doing is they were paying for these things with Bitcoin. And I remember sitting there in a car with a friend, like right after then talking, and he's like, hey, you think we should buy some? And the price had just <laughs> come a whole bunch down. And this was just before the big pump in 2013. So I don't know if you remember this, but we should have bought some. But I was like, oh, no, like, you know, probably all the demand was from the Silk Road. So because of that, the price is going to go down. And so we missed out. You know, we should have been in it earlier. And it turned out the opposite happened. It went crazy and went up to like $1,200. And this was kind of like a first experience to me of realizing that I'd misinterpreted what was going to happen there. Because what I'd underestimated was, hey, listen, the news was going to make a lot more people aware of this cool thing called Bitcoin. And it wasn't until 
maybe like a year or year and a half later that I started using it a little bit. And it was for me actually transactional. It wasn't like it was in store of value or something where I wanted to do it as an investment. It was like, hey, somebody wanted to have something paid for. And I discovered, oh, you can go to Bitcoin ATMs and tried doing this, you know, putting some cash into this ATM to get some Bitcoin to then send the Bitcoin to someone. And, you know, that was uh, that was pretty cool. And so that was kind of like my early experience. And then kind of we got into a community of people who you know, were interested in buying. And, you know, I was like, I don't know, this thing is like, what is it? There's really nothing there. And, you know, so then it started to get bigger and bigger. And, you know, obviously 2017, a lot of people noticed it and became more aware. And I probably did a really stupid thing. I made some money in 2017. So that was good. Uh, although I was like, very much like, hey, guys, this is like a total hype bubble. Um, but then I kind of like in 2018, I didn't pay attention to it. And I should have, you know, 2018, 2019, I wasn't as on it as I should have been. I was busy doing other things. And that was like the best time, right? So this is a great, uh, a great lesson for me going forward that when you have a revolutionary technology that's going to be huge in the future, don't really worry about what is going to be short term, you know, this year or next year, because, you know, overall, the trajectory is it's going to be very big. And I, I talked to people about this from the perspective of Amazon, you know, like Amazon dropped a ton in 2001. And you probably wish you'd bought a lot of Amazon back then um, because, you know, it didn't go to zero. Quite the opposite. It became the most valuable company in the world, at least for a while. And so, yeah. That, uh, well, it sounds like, you know, when you look at what Amazon brought was utility and that's equally what Bitcoin has brought as well, or blockchain technology is that there's use case behind it. And mm -hmm. you talked about earlier what happened with the Silk Road and there was a number of people around the world that all of a sudden did hear about the word Bitcoin for the first time through that, uh, through that moment or, or through what they were doing. But the purpose of using Bitcoin is not all nefarious and the people that today are investing in it, the majority are, are good, decent people. And that's kind of the opportunity that I see that what's happening now globally is that it is becoming accepted as an asset class and people are starting to see it just like an asset class. Yep. So talk about blockchain technology, man, from your perspective, what do you see it really brings that, let's say the internet 1.0 um, couldn't bring? Well, you know, the way that it was described to me at some point was you digitize trust, right? You basically don't need to have trust between two people because you can trust code, not people. And therefore, there are many, many, many examples of cases in life where we have an intermediary who facilitates a transaction between two people and blockchain allows you to not have to have that transaction. And that's expensive, correct? That when there is this yeah, middle, yeah. I'm going to say middle man, it's, it's kind of like the wrong word, but that's what we've always called it. When the middle person or the middle thing is in the middle, it is creating fees. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like you think about going to a lawyer where you'll have like an escrow account. I remember a little while back, uh, I was in a transaction where we bought a website domain, right? And so you use like escrow.com. I don't remember what they took for fees, maybe like 6% or something like that. You know, that was, uh, that was something that was an issue. And so overall, I look at it kind of like, Hey, listen, you can disintermediate, uh, these, these parties and, uh, and you can still do really well. I think, you know, like, so that's one thing. That's one thing. The other thing that has not been talked maybe as much about, or at least I didn't hear about it uh, as much early on, but I think is as a coordination mechanism. You know, one of the things that's super interesting about blockchain is uh, the coordination mechanics of it. 
that allow you to get a lot of people working together in some way. And you can play around with the incentive structures to get people to work together. And there's all kinds of things that are, are really useful in that regard because you can keep track of data in a way that is trusted, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of like, if I think about it, what's the basic thing? Well, you can trust this data, right? Here's a piece of information that we can trust. We know how it's going to behave. We know that it's there. We know that it wasn't manipulated by someone. You know, we live in a world of fake news, right? Where just like, what can you trust? And here, at least it's like, this person signed this with their private key. Pretty unlikely that somebody else had the private key and signed it. I guess probably at some point in the future, we'll get into a situation where that sort of thing happens and we'll have to have to navigate that. But, you know, I have this much Bitcoin. I don't have to worry about, you know, did somebody manipulate those balances or anything like this? So, yeah, I think I mean, that's a big thing that if you're looking to and I know a number of people in the M&A space that the challenge is when you buy a company, you're going based upon what they what they decided to tell you. I mean, outside of some information that can be tracked on some sort of portal, for the most part, you really don't know everything about the business. What I'm finding is that blockchain really fixes those problems that if you're in the M&A space, that you should have almost a prerequisite and requirement that the companies you're acquiring, at least for a period of time, maybe use some underlying technology like this, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. No, I've been involved in some transactions where, for example, uh, a friend uh, I was doing with him bought a water company and it was like a total fraud. Basically, they're like, oh, we don't need to have many employees. Well, it was because they had a sister company who they put all those employees onto that company's books and you wouldn't see it until you actually got in there. And, you know, like everything that they would say, like, oh, yeah, our contracts, you know, they don't have this. You go and look at the contracts. It's not like that, you know, on and on and on. And I do think that we have to look at both sides of this because there is a privacy concern there, too. Right. Like you don't just want everything to be 100 percent transparent. Even uh, there was somebody did a tweet recently talking about how. You should buy, if you're buying something with crypto, send it from an exchange. Otherwise, you can dox your balance, right? And basically show off like, hey, listen, here's how much crypto I have in my wallet. Or if you go and do like a local Bitcoin type exchange, right? If you go and meet somebody in person and you send a transaction from your wallet where you've got a million dollars in Bitcoin, that person in front of you might pull out a gun and be like, hey, you know, happy day. So, yeah. And and by the way, when, when people say, well, where I live in the world, that doesn't happen to me, go, but there are other parts of the world where it does happen and it happens quite frequently because desperate people will do desperate things. So why would you go show off? It's kind of like walking down the street. Should everybody have a sign on their head that says, here's how much I have in my bank account? No. You would say, well, that's not, you have the right to privacy. I go, well, it's the same thing. It doesn't mean you're, you're trying to break a law. I mean, I pay my taxes. So it does happen. Privacy. We give it to those in the banking sector. Those that are in this new asset class, well, they deserve the same, that same exact thing. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, and so there's there's a really interesting kind of balance of utility that we have here because I think that it, it, even like the idea that wallets are pseudo-anonymous on, uh, on Bitcoin, right? Like this serves a really valuable purpose. On the other hand, being able to have identity connected to the blockchain also serves a purpose. And so, you know, it's like one of the things that's super cool is it's an emerging technology and there's a lot of innovation in the space. And so we're going to solve these things over time. But these are some of the problems that we have to navigate, right? It's like, okay, how do you have transparency, but you've also got some privacy? How so is how, the- I got to ask you then, because again, you're, you're considered like an OG now in the space, that when you think about the internet 1.0, like, these were the same problems they must have faced, like a different kind of problems. But building something and having everybody worried and scared and you know, fearful and then news articles and trying to innovate where other parts of the world we're moving faster. Like what were these early OGs 
in the tech community dealing with? You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you saw, uh, there was some interviews with Mark Cuban, and he's an interesting person to hear because he actually went through that, right? And so I've heard him talk about how, you know, it was really difficult to try and convince governments that, hey, listen, you should run fiber because having a fast data set connection is going to be really valuable. And it's like, well, why do we need that? You know, this <laughs> yeah. Sort of thing. So yeah, like there's this, I mean, if you just think about that, the internet was essentially a completely new utility, right? We don't have many utilities. We've got like electricity, maybe gas, water, you know, okay, we had telephones came along and now you had this totally new one, which is data, right? And people are like, hey, why do we need data? You know, so we've got these other things. So yeah, like I imagine that there's similar similar sort of challenges. I mean, they had to be going through that. I mean, I'm sure there were companies that were password encryption companies and other people are going, why would you need to do that? And go, how can you not see? You need to encrypt your password. That yeah. you, 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 there's a like, it's much like now on an iPhone, you can log in through your eyeball that that technology in order to get there, it takes things that is new. It hasn't been done before. And I, and I know that for those that I guess are watching it from the outside, they think, well, how are people going to use this? And this is what I love, what DeFi brings. DeFi brings such transparency to a system that is not completely broken, but it is fractured, a system that can be can be fixed. And it's and it's a very simple solution. So talk about DeFi. I mean, you see people like Michael Arrington and others that are talking more and more about this, this word DeFi. What is DeFi? Yeah, so... I mean, DeFi stands for, for those who don't know, decentralized finance. And so you can just pretty quickly think, hey, listen, right now you deal with centralized financial institutions, right? You go to the bank, you go to the credit card company. There's relatively few. In fact, they tend to cascade upwards because then you've got a central bank in the country and, you know, you've got the IMF and the World Bank. things like. So you have this centralized authority around money. And uh, basically what we're doing with decentralized finance is we're saying, okay, we can break up. Uh, the functions of those major institutions and we can put it into code and we can allow anyone essentially to run a node on a blockchain network that facilitates the types of transactions that banks do and that credit card companies do and so on and so forth. So they, you know, you already have, I mean, probably even though it wasn't applied to this, Bitcoin is really like the first DeFi if you think about it, because it's like, hey, listen, I control my wallet. I, which is really like my bank account, right? I'm like, hey, listen, my bank account is mine. I don't have anyone else to worry about. I don't have to, you know, go to a bank and ask. It's like, it's mine. If I want to send money, I do it. And each person individually goes and does that. And it's run on a decentralized network of servers, basically through mining and node operators who are around the world who- I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, think about what what has been able to to have now been created for thousands of years. You've had to place trust yeah. literally in some other person, some other group of people that really aren't looking out for your best interest. Now, one could argue, well, what's in your best interest is theirs. I'm like, no, nah, that's not true. And if you're splitting profit, <laughs> then maybe, but if you're not sharing on the profit side. So in terms of how innovative this is, and then why did this start now? I mean, in the past couple of years, why isn't this something that, I mean, look, the, the New York Stock Exchange is 230 years old. How yeah. is it now that in a very short time period, DeFi has really taken... Uh, I guess, t- taking the market by storm around the world. Yeah, I guess, you know, I- I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about that question, because it's it's interesting. I often think that it's enabling technologies, right? Like, if you think there was a lot of attempts at doing something like Bitcoin before Bitcoin, but it wasn't until Bitcoin that it really worked and that they were able to prove the process out. 
Uh, and you needed to get a certain critical mass of people who were using it, who were saying, wow, this is cool. Look at what this can do. And then you had things like Ethereum came along, right? And Ethereum was kind of, again, like other people were trying to do stuff kind of similar to Ethereum on like everyone developing their own blockchain. And so Ethereum's like, okay, we're going to make like the one size fits all. Anyone can develop what they want on it. And so you needed these enabling technologies and you needed a sufficient critical mass of adoption in order for people to have the building blocks. Like even, you know, I think DeFi is super early right now. I look at, we're kind of building the base layer, right? The fact that you can deposit money into a smart contract, the fact that you can have liquidity pools, the fact that you can uh, transfer from one chain to another, the fact that you can aggregate liquidity between multiple different DEXs and uh, centralized exchanges, like all these different things. These are just like really base level enabling layers that will allow us to build the real stuff over the next 10 years. That's remarkable. I, I love hearing that because people don't realize how early this still is. Again, if the New York Stock Exchange, if it's taken 230 years to get to where it is today, and you look at this, this ecosystem, you know, people hear the word cryptocurrency. I like to think of blockchain technology, but blockchain now is, it is the blockchain age and it is yep. taking over all aspects around the world from the, in the financial institutions to, to governments, to, to healthcare, uh, to, to education that it is being in some capacity implemented. And I think, as you said, that this technology itself is disruptive. It is disruptive to the status quo. And the status quo has been, it is okay for us to charge somebody an enormous amount of fees because we've only, we've always done that. We've yeah. always charged you a lot of fees. So why are you so upset now? And I think it's fascinating that the generation of today, you know, either because of, I don't know, um, maybe some moments in their lives, or maybe there was that moment, but th they see it and they know we can do it better and we yep. can make it more efficient and we can make it more transparent. And we're not, we're not trying to break laws around the world and, and you're actually trying to create unity. I mean, this is an ecosystem, Michael, that pulls together people of different skin color, mm -hmm. of different cultures. I mean, think mm -hmm. about that, yep. of different religions, of different politics yep. that it pulls there's nothing out there that I know of that has created more unity. I mean, of course, there's problems. Now there's problems everywhere in everything you do. Yep. But what I love is people like you are finding solutions to those problems and saying, look, the problems exist. Let's just figure out how we can fix them together so that everybody okay. wins. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. You know, like I just think about when you mentioned the thing about fees, you know, and I mean, really, why shouldn't it be as easy to send money as sending a text message? That's kind of like, you know, it's all digital anyway, right? Why shouldn't it be that easy? And if it's that easy, well, it doesn't cost me anything to send text messages. So why should it send cost me a whole bunch of money to send money? One plus one equals two. <laughs> and there's a group of people would say, well, but why, why can't you just wait three days? Why can't you just wait seven days? And my response is, man, with my ADHD, I'm telling you, it will drive me crazy. I, 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 I get consumed by why isn't here? Why, why do I have to wait five days? Why should sure. it come in in three minutes or in a text message? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so then that goes to the next step too, which is understanding how our world has changed, right? Like I, I look at uh, people were in a situation where it used to be you could go and you could pay for things with cash. You could carry around a bunch of cash. But today, you know, I have contractors who work for me in Eastern Europe, in Asia, in Africa, you know, people in North America, in Europe. It's like, what am I going to carry them cash to all these places? It's just totally not viable. And sure. so it's such a democratizing 
uh, technology because it gives people everywhere in the world the opportunity to be lifted up. Uh, whereas normally they wouldn't. Normally, if it's like, hey, listen, if you can't go for a job in Silicon Valley or you can't go to some high expensive university or something, you just can't get the job. Now you can sit at home in your house and, you know, whether it's the Philippines or in Kenya or in, you know, Argentina, and you can do work and you can work for whatever company is on the Internet and you can get paid for it. And now it turns out that actually getting paid for it is getting it should be getting really easy. Blockchain makes it really easy, but banks aren't. Banks, to some extent, are making it harder. They're like, oh, boy, we have to watch out about, uh, you know, making sure this person is who they are, say. And it just turns out that the rules were made for one society, which is different than in another society. And it, it's prohibitive for uh, for the people who need it, need it most. And so I think it's a great equalizer. And it I think it, that's it is. And you know what's interesting that I find that around the world today, there's still a large group of people that are unbanked. Yes. And you would say, how can that be? How can there be a group of people that still don't have access or can't open, or quite frankly, are too afraid of the people in their area to even open one, not because they're doing anything wrong, but because those people could come in and quite frankly, take their funds. Yeah. I mean, it has happened in countries around the world where the country's not doing well, and then they tap into everybody's bank accounts. And yep. so you now have to, what, you have to give up for somebody else? Like that's that's not a, a that's not a model that that I believe is one that is sustainable, uh, especially after what has happened with with COVID shutting down the world. And what I think is fascinating is that this ecosystem now creates accountability, yeah. and it forces transparency. Yeah. And transparency is a great thing because it you know the old all ships rise together. Then it's going to pull the rest of the industries out there. It'll bring the traditional market up with it. That all roads will ultimately lead to how do we improve? How do we make it better? And so that leads me to my next question. How do we learn more about DeFi Yield? Yeah, I mean, so for those who don't know, DeFi Yield is a, a technology project that we're building. You can go to DeFiYield.app and check it out. We've built what is basically a, a cross-chain uh, asset management protocol. And we're really focused on two key things. One is making DeFi accessible because right now it's like using MS-DOS. It's, uh, you know, not the... I don't know, iPhone experience that you would like to have. So working on that to make the process easier for people. And then second of all, and I think this is like probably the most important and significant one right now is making it much, much safer for people. Every day, if you're in the space, you'll see like there's rug pulls and there's hacks and there's all kinds of different things. I think about it like uh, how we had a lot of viruses back in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s. You had forever all this malware that would get on your computer. And, you know, you were talking about how the technology like, you know, somebody would be like, hey, why do you need a virus scan? It's like, well, that became, then it became, how can you not have a virus scan? And same idea here is that. Why do you need two, uh, what is it? Two factor authentication. I think I said. Authentication. Wrong, yeah. yeah that, why do you need that? And go, really? Why do you want to do that? Well, I can show you some case studies for, for why, for people that didn't do it. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, so we're bringing in uh, some really cool technology that essentially applies uh, automated uh, scanning and machine learning to auditing smart contracts and basically allowing people to uh, keep their investments and their money safe and not get caught in, you know, people who are going to maliciously go out there and, uh, and abuse this new technology. Because the reality is that for all that is powerful and it is wonderful, it's also complex. And for a normal person, you know, they're not going to be able to go and read a solidity contract or something like that. Come on. That's uh, that's crazy. 
And so we want it to be that anyone can participate. It should be very egalitarian and we need some tools to, uh, to make it that way. So that is, uh, that is the mission. So people who are not familiar, you can go and check it out. You can go and join our telegram group and, uh, you know, there's lots of, lots of great, great content out there. So thanks again for sharing your story on the Bitcoin.com podcast. The opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by various guests or sponsors of the podcast are solely their own. They do not necessarily reflect those of the podcast host or the other people, entities, or organizations affiliated with the creation or production of the podcast. The guest and sponsor may consider their information reliable, but others involved in the creation or presentation of the podcast do not warrant the accuracy of guest or sponsor information, and it should not be relied upon. You've listened to another episode of the Bitcoin.com podcast. Subscribe at news.bitcoin.com, where your journey begins.